0: Hi, I'm Vivian Wang, co-founder of the Wiser Podcast, where we continue to have discussions about women in surgery with Emory surgeons, in addition to interviewing surgeons beyond our local community.
1: So welcome back to another podcast on Wiser, co-hosted by Audible Bleeding. I'm Amanda Faubert, a recently graduated general surgery chief resident and current Emory Vascular Fellow. Today we are honored to have Dr. Karen Rockman with us. Dr. Rockman earned her medical degree from New York University and stayed to complete her general surgery residency and vascular surgery fellowship. She is currently the Florence and Joseph
2: Retorto. Retorto
1: <laughs> professor of Surgical Research and Program Director of NYU's Vascular Surgery Fellowship. Welcome, Dr.
2: Rockman. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Absolutely.
1: So we'd like to get started with just a little bit about you, where you grew up, your educational background, and a little about your family.
2: Sure. I grew up in a suburb of New York City. It's called Rockland County. It's about 30 miles north of Manhattan. I went to public school. I applied for college and, of course, there were many good colleges on the East Coast then as there are now. I I don't know why I decided to go to California. I can't think back and think why I did it. I think I wanted to be a little bit different and also it was probably, of course, one of the better schools that I had gotten into. So I decided to go to to Stanford. I always knew I wanted to be a physician. I was pre-med from the start. I had a wonderful education and loved my time at Stanford. But perhaps because I was really away from everyone in my family, I wanted to go back to the East Coast when I finished. And I remember interviewing at NYU Medical School, and I remember walking in and having this feeling like I like it here, I feel like I would fit here, which is one of the things I was just having a conversation with someone else about in virtual interviews. And it's one of those things that's really missing in the virtual interview process, being able to get a sense of a place. But I went to medical school there, and I've never left. Early on, did you know
1: that you wanted to pursue a career in vascular surgery, or was that something that happened later?
2: So I knew I wanted to do surgery. Even when I started medical school, I, I felt that I wanted to do surgery. I didn't take vascular surgery until much later, but I always knew I wanted to do surgery. And the only time I got a little bit frightened about it was when I was actually applying, and I felt like a surgical residency, certainly at that time and still now, was going to be very demanding, and I got a little bit... Nervous to the point where I, I think I actually at the end registered like with the ophthalmology match or something, <laughs> but then I just decided to go for it. So I applied in general surgery. I loved my general surgery training and I loved general surgery. However, during the time I was a general surgery resident, probably about the middle of my R2 year, that's when laparoscopy came around. And it was like all the cholecystectomies I did as a second-year resident were open. Mm -hmm. And then when I was a third-year resident, they were all laparoscopic. And I'm not knocking laparoscopy, of course. I'm saying I didn't particularly like laparoscopy, although I liked everything else. And then at that time, the vascular surgery program was not a match. And I liked vascular surgery when I rotated on the service. I liked the technical aspects of the operations and actually the – chair of the division at the time just basically said you know our fellowship program is open why don't you do it? It was a one year fellowship at that time so it didn't add a lot to my training. And I really felt like even if I decide to do general surgery, this vascular surgery training will help me in getting a job and being marketable and and so I did it and I loved it. I never changed.
1: And then I know that you've had an illustrious research career. How did you first get involved with clinical
2: research? Mm So when I got married, when I was a general surgery resident at the end of my intern year, I very much wanted to have a child, wanted to have a family. So what I did, which is probably a little bit unusual, I decided to take a research year off, a clinical research year. I never liked basic science research. I had done a little bit in college, it just wasn't for me. But I liked the idea of clinical research. I always liked writing. And I decided to take a year off between residency and fellowship. So I took that year off and made a clinical research year out of it. And then, of course, I planned my older daughter's pregnancy and birth to the day. You know, I said, <laughs> I want to get pregnant at this time so I can have my baby in the middle of my research year so I can be on a less demanding schedule with her at home for six months and then I'll go back and do my fellowship. And somehow, you know, those plans don't always work out. Everyone, that's exactly what I did. So uh, I had a baby just smack in the middle of my um, research year. I started my research (laughs) year July 1. I had my baby on November 28th, and then I went back the following July 1. So I I did a clinical research year, and that's where I really learned. I had a couple of great mentors. I always liked statistics math. I did my statistics that time self-taught. And I liked writing, and I always had an aptitude for writing. And I published like eight or ten papers that year, and I liked chart review, believe it or not. I liked that detective kind of work. Mm -hmm. And when I was hired as a faculty member, my mentor said to me, you're a very good surgeon, but a lot of people are very good surgeons. You really seem to have an aptitude for this. So Mm -hmm. this is one of the things I want you to consider part of your job to continue as a faculty Mm -hmm. member. And I did.
1: Wonderful. It sounds like you still have a very busy clinical practice, even with publishing all of these papers. Do you have strategies for fellows or trainees in general on how to continue publishing quality, um, quality no. work while, while
2: learning operations? So I think it's quite rare in the world of residency or fellowship, or even as a surgical faculty member, to have protected time for clinical research. I mean, that's rare, if not impossible. clinical research doesn't have the same specific time demands as does basic science research. And I did what most people do, which is you do it when you're not busy. Of course, you're always busy. But it lends itself to doing stuff when you have a week or a couple of days that you're not busy in the operating room. You have time in the evening, time in the weekends. This is what everyone I know did at that time. You just somehow fit it in. You have to be disciplined to do that. But that's what I did. Maybe there are places that have that kind of protected time for clinical research. And I certainly think for people who want to make research the primary part of their career and apply for grants and do clinical trials, I think that's possible. But for people who want to have a busy surgical practice, you fit it in. If it's important to you, you fit it in. You do it at home after your kids go to sleep and things like that. And I see my younger faculty members doing it like that now.
1: And then this morning, thank you for your talk. It was phenomenal for um, our listeners. Uh, Dr. Rockman gave a talk on carotid artery disease in women and particularly the disparities in our clinical trials and enrolling women in the next steps that we take as vascular surgeons. Uh, so what interested you in exploring the underrepresentation of women and underrepresented minorities in mm-hmm. clinical trials?
2: Well, the, the issue with carotid artery surgery, particularly carotid endarterectomy and the outcomes in women It's mind boggling to me that this has been a controversy for so long, right? And as I mentioned in my talk, and as I'm sure you know, it's 30 years and every journal that comes out, there's another paper on the outcomes of carotid surgery in women. Are they worse? Are they not as good? Carotid surgery also, again, it's unique. You're taking a patient who has no symptoms whatsoever and doing a completely preventative operation. So it makes it especially crucial that we know what the perioperative risk is for these patients. And then when I look to see why all this controversy has occurred, it really goes back to the beginning. It really goes back to not including enough women in those early trials. And I I have no doubt that this is not an intentional thing, but nevertheless, it's something that happened. And once it happened and once ACAS said that the perioperative stroke rate is double in women, It kind of set this thing in motion that has never been corrected. Why has it never been corrected? Because no matter what data there is, there's data on both sides. You can find data that says anything you want, and no one's ever going to do this randomized clinical trial again, and certainly no one's going to do it specifically in women. And it makes it really hard because, you know, we have all this data, and when it comes down to it, you're sitting in the room with a patient, and you want to recommend the right thing. And there's nothing so devastating for a vascular surgeon as to have a perioperative stroke in an asymptomatic patient, right? That's really the worst thing can happen. I mean, you can take a patient with an aortic aneurysm and have a bad outcome from your procedure and the patient can have a perioperative mortality, which is also devastating, but at least you know that that patient had a fatal disease that you were addressing. Whereas in carotids, it's very different. We have no way to perfectly predict who's at higher risk for a stroke. And and therefore, when you have a bad outcome, I think it's particularly painful.
1: And then the other thing that we touched on, especially in today's context, is enrolling populations who have been marginalized by the medical community is very difficult in any sort of research trial. And I think. There won't really be true equity until we have more equity in society, or or equity at all, honestly. But what are the steps that we can take now while we continue to further those social justice efforts Mm -hmm. in enrolling folks whose communities have been marginalized for years and who have been, you know, targeted and mistreated by the system? How do we engender their trust and in the process, in us as physicians, in our researchers, and, and in our goals to create a more, more
2: inclusive environment. So these are obviously very challenging and important questions, and I don't think there's one right answer. I showed this morning some material that's available from the NIH and the FDA as well. There's a lot of tools and resources for researchers already created for us to use tools in different languages, social media outreach. Certainly, there is a the belief that diversification of research staff will help. We hear all the time these days that people tend to be more trustful of people who look like them, for lack of a better term. So diversification of research staff is one step towards gaining patients' trust. I think community outreach and engagement is very important. In my institution at NYU, there's a breast surgeon, Dr. Kathy Ann Joseph, who has made incredible headway in her particular area, which is breast cancer, in some of the underserved, predominantly African-American communities in New York City. And she has done so primarily by engaging the help of people in the community to go give talks in that community in churches on the weekend. And I think we can take a lot of knowledge from that approach. It's challenging to do, but particularly for clinical trials, particularly when you're asking a patient to be involved in an experiment, Mm -hmm. I think that trust is paramount. So I don't have a perfect answer, but I think those are some of the ways that we can increase trust.
1: I have definitely heard the exclamation from patients I mean, that, you know, you want me to enroll in an experiment? And it's like, you no, I, I promise I'm not experimenting on you and try to explain things. But it's definitely a very real and substantiated
2: fear. And probably deservedly so. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is hard as a clinician, especially when you're randomizing someone to two different treatments, to, to tell the patient, we don't know what's best. And therefore, we're going to flip a coin. And you're going to have this treatment or that treatment. And we want to know which is best. But we're going to randomize you. I mean, that's challenging for any patient to accept. I really think it is, and it's the hard thing to explain. So I think some data I showed this morning which looks into this, shows that the patients, their trust in their physician or how well things are explained, are really, really incredibly important. And of course, some aspects of trust can go back to what you touched on earlier um, with certain demographic populations.
1: This morning we reviewed some of the papers that have come out of VQI and other large mm-hmm. databases that addresses corona disease, particularly in women. What do you think the limitations of using VQI are going to be moving forward? Can we really compare all of these patients yeah. to well, each
2: other? I, I think VQI is an amazing tool. For those i listening who don't know what I'm VQI sure. is, VQI is the Vascular Quality Initiative and it's part of the um, Society for Vascular Surgery Patient Safety Organization and it has voluntary participation from groups. What it does is it captures basically all operative interventions. So if you enroll in the VQI carotid artery database, it captures all your carotid interventions. And they monitor this by auditing your billing every six months. Because one thing to know is that all doctors and surgeons, you're billing your work and they match it up to make sure people don't only enter their good outcome cases but not their bad outcome cases. I think in, it is an absolutely incredible tool to gather large volume populations, right? So if you want to study the outcome of carotids in women at your institution with TCAR and you do 100 a year, that's one thing. But if you have data from 30 institutions, obviously the statistical power of what you're going to find is much, much better. And Those are the good things. And I think it really is a phenomenal tool. And some phenomenal papers have come out of the VQI. One of the interesting things that happened with the beginning of the VQI when it was part of just the New England, the VSGNE, they called it. There's an author named Dr. David Stone who wrote a paper about using protamine at the end of carotid surgery. Should we use protamine or should we not use protamine? And he actually found out that the use of protamine to reverse heparinization really did significantly decrease the risk of, you know, bleeding. And they did surveys before and after this patient paper was published, and they found that for VQI members, the use of protamine dramatically increased. So it was a really quick way to get information and disseminate it and have people make changes based on that information, which I think is very powerful. What are the downsides of the VQI? You lack certain granularity. You may know that a, this patient, 20,013, had a stroke after their carotid endarterectomy but you cannot look at the chart and find out why the patient had a stroke. What is the mechanism of that stroke? There are also um, inherent flaws with all big databases, garbage in, garbage out, people say, who's doing the coding, who's entering the things. And also sometimes when you get so big, everything that you look at becomes statistically significant. And sometimes it's statistically significant, but it doesn't seem to make clinical sense. So I think the VQI is a fantastic tool I think that great papers can come out of the VQI, and sometimes some bad papers can come out of the VQI, depending on what you're looking at. When you first
0: set out to get involved in research, Mm -hmm. I find it kind of poetic, you know, you got involved in research almost to accommodate family planning, and then a good amount of your research involves gender differences. I'm wondering if that was an intention at the outset to evaluate gender differences, or as you were digging through it came about? That's a good um, question.
2: I I did first take my stint into clinical research to accommodate my family planning. That's absolutely true. I don't know that I intentionally thought about it at that time. I know at my institution, we were an institution that did a lot of carotid endoterectomies, and people were disturbed when ACAS came out that, geez, maybe our female patients are not doing well, and we haven't realized this. And that's why we specifically decided to look at our own results. I'm not knocking randomized clinical trials. We need these things. But it's interesting when you think that, well, ACAS had 280 women who had carotid endarterectomy, and we've done a 1,000 carotid endarterectomies here over the past X number of years, and we're not seeing a higher perioperative complication rate. Why might that be? And that's the difference between randomized clinical trials and real world data. And obviously when you're assessing these things, you have to look at both. Mm -hmm. Um, A randomized clinical trial is not always definitive, particularly when it wasn't set out or powered to look at that to begin with. So I I don't know that I deliberately decided to do that, but it was definitely those results in ACAS at my institution at the time that we decided to look at this out of concern Mm -hmm. that we might not be doing well with our female patients. That's how it started out. One of my senior colleagues, whose name is Dr. Patrick Lamprello, he was the program director at NYU for many, many years. And I had heard through the grapevine that he was stepping down. And the truth is before I heard that he wanted to step down, it just wasn't in my radar screen. But once I heard he was stepping down and I also heard that some of my other colleagues perhaps wanted this job, I thought to myself, that's really something that I would like. And I was lucky enough to obtain this position. I love working with the trainees. I think you have to have a passion for education. You have to be patient. Sometimes my role is a little bit of a, for lack of a better word, a maternal role. I I think of it like my children, and sometimes your children can annoy you, but you have to love all your children, right? So I say to myself every day, I love all my children. These days, it's a work intensive role because the amount of scrutiny and paperwork and things like that have really exploded, not necessarily in the greatest way, for my opinion. And when you're a program director in vascular, if you're the program director of a fellowship and and a residency, they are considered to be two separate programs and you have to do them in duplicate. So it's a lot of work and time commitment. It goes up and down. Obviously, during recruitment and interview season, it can get very high, and sometimes it's a little bit less. You also really have to be available. You have to be available 24-7 if a resident or, or fellow has a problem, and I am. And when my children were younger, I used to say, My cell phone is on all night because I have teenage daughters in the house, and that's why I I always have to be available. Well, my daughters are no longer teenagers, and they no longer live at home, but my phone is still next to my bed every night. I feel like I have to be available if there's a problem. Recruitment is interesting. I think you have to, as program director, walk a very fine line between, of course, as we want to, trying to recruit women or other groups who are underrepresented in medicine into our field and making it accessible. And certainly, I think that I, as the face of a program and program director, can do that. But you also want to be fair and you want to look at applications in an unbiased way or as unbiased as we all can be. It's a fine line. As you may know, when we look at applications on ERAS, you cannot see anybody's picture. We have a name, but not a picture. Sometimes people will identify as a certain racial or ethnic group. I will be quite frank with you, even though I very much want to promote and recruit women or other underrepresented applicants, when I go through the applications initially, I try not to think about that. I try to make my first impression simply based on everybody's credentials and then take it from there.
1: What are the some of the best things that you see in an application or unique things that you've seen that have really caught your attention as a program director to recruit somebody?
2: Well, these days, there are some really common themes, and it's life and sociology or whatever you want to talk about goes in waves. One is the theme of, for example, a first-generation American, people who are the children of parents who immigrated to the United States, and really want to go into medicine to try to help to increase equity, reduce disparities, and give back to their communities. And that is so common these days. And it's interesting to me how it seems to have happened all at once. I don't recall seeing as much of this in applications five years ago, but now almost every application says this. So I do think there's a great preponderance of people who Appear to have gotten to where they are coming from more humble or modest circumstances I don't know if there's a better way to describe that and have really worked hard Obviously and had the talent and aptitude to get to medical school and then want to do something to give back to their communities other things that you see I mean as you might imagine people who want to go into medicine tend to be high achievers So many people were very significant athletes, musicians, have something else in their lives. And I think that's a common theme as well.
1: Is there any advice you have for med students entering the application
0: season moving forward?
2: I think the virtual application process is very difficult for the medical students. I think it's much more difficult for the medical students than it is for us, the faculty, the evaluators. We still get the same paper application, and certainly having a Zoom interview for 20 to 30 minutes is relatively equivalent to meeting someone in person, but the applicants are kind of prohibited from visiting a place. You don't walk in and get the sense of that feeling or culture or or meeting people one-on-one, and I think it makes it much harder on you. I think my advice would be Uh, First of all, I I think having been a New Yorker who went out to California for school and came back, I think it's important for most people to have a support system. I think being not too far from your family or whoever your support system might be is important. And therefore, I think geography is important. I think you can get good training in almost any specialty in many, many places. So I think if you think it will be helpful for you to be near your family, significant other, whoever that might be, I think that takes great importance. You should look for a stable faculty, particularly in smaller subspecialties. I'm thinking about my own field now, which is vascular surgery, which is a smaller subspecialty, right? But if you go to a place with one great aortic person there, and then that person leaves during your training, that can hurt your training. So I think these are things that maybe people don't think about, but a larger faculty is important. Redundancy in faculty is important, and of course these days I think that people do want to see that there is some diversity in faculty in any way you want to use that word, different approaches, different demographics. I don't know if I have any more advice. Be be yourself. Be you know. Ultimately, you know the difference between applying for a surgical subspecialty and an internal medicine residency. Is that we as surgeons spend hours with each other on a daily basis. <laughs> right. It's a different for relationship. Or worse. What? <laughs> for, for better or for, for worse. worse. Right. It's exa- it's like a marriage, That's right? True. So you want to be compatible with the person Works. that you're marrying, right? An internal meso- medicine residency doesn't have that. There's not that same focused, intense kind of relationship where you may be in the operating room with someone for seven hours doing a challenging case under challenging circumstances. Yeah, you want someone that it's going to be pleasant to be with in, in challenging circumstances. And that's not something you can see on a piece of paper, right? right. Um, no matter how wonderful someone's credentials are. So that's why interviews are important. Yeah. I think the other thing beyond just mm-hmm. operating is that
1: they're, especially in vascular surgery, with how critical a lot of our patients are, is the post-operative care. So, well, yes, Mm -hmm. the eight-hour operation, but I remember distinct periods of time in my fellowship where I think I spoke to Dr. Jordan and or Dr. DeWary every four to six hours for weeks on end because you have a critical patient in the ICU or numerous critical patients or you you take a call together and and there's a lot of things happening.
2: What kind of music do you like to listen to in the OR? Well, I will tell you the truth. I like a lot of music, and this may disappoint you. I don't really mind listening to music in the aura, but I don't love it either. I will generally let whoever's with me put on whatever they want, but I will tell you this. When things get a little bit tense in the aura, which, believe it or not, can happen in (laughs) vascular surgery, the first thing I always say is, turn the music off. I think it distracts me. As far as what I like, I like everything. I like classical music. I like classic rock. I like jazz. I like classics. But I don't have one particular type because I don't usually say, okay, I want to put my music on now like a lot of surgeons do. Sure.
1: I will say there was an interesting corollary is that when you're driving in your car and you get lost, Mm -hmm. one of the first reactions actually to turn down the music mm-hmm. and all truthfulness for for any patients that may be listening i think if things are either turning or we need to all be a little more focused it also signals to the rest of the room who may not be standing at the table including our anesthesia colleagues our nursing colleagues or scrub techs True. we all need to focus in together and, and have yeah. harmony in this moment i will say uh, dr dodson who sort of inspired the creation of wiser this uh-huh. wiser podcast he always prefers classical music or movie scores okay and uh I had put on, I think, Orff's Commuter Verano, which is a, a pretty intense opera. And I will say that he paused in the operation to say, okay, this is a little, we're doing an access case. This it's, is it's, it's,
2: it's funny you say that because we case. are, we do a lot of, um varicose vein procedures in the office with the patients sure. awake and when that happens we you often let the patient choose yes. their music and i think yes. that's perfectly appropriate you know a lot of the patients will choose a classical music statement and all of a sudden there's like wagner in the room right. and i'm thinking somehow this doesn't seem that relaxing this, is not restful. this does not seem relaxing to me yes
0: i think as a final question a lot of our listeners are mostly students residents mm-hmm. people in training striving for a career like yours or what would be your parting words of wisdom?
2: So I I have actually very good advice, believe it or not, I'm going to give you advice my mother gave me. I, I mentioned before that when I was a senior medical student and decided to go into the surgery match that I got a little bit scared at the beginning. At the time I was single and general surgery residency and training at that time as it is now was very, very demanding. But it was even more demanding back then, to be honest. There were no hours restrictions. Certainly for a couple of years, you could work 110, 120 hours a week. And I was also staying at the place I was in medical school. So I felt like I knew everyone there already. And I remember saying to my mother, if I do this general surgery training, I will never meet someone. I will never get married. Not that everyone wants to get married, but that's what I said for me. And my mother said to me, if you left medicine tomorrow completely and you decided you wanted to work. As a salesperson at Bloomingdale's, there still is no guarantee in life that you are going to meet someone, get married, have a family and have those things that you think you want. So you might as well be doing what you want and what you love. And that's what I think is really most important. I think people should do what they want and what they love and and everything else will work out in the end.
1: So well, thank you for, for um, chatting with us today and, and a phenomenal lecture this morning.
2: Thank you. It's yeah, thank been you so delightful. Much. It's been a really nice visit and it's been a pleasure to meet all of you.
0: Thanks for tuning in to today's Wiser podcast. Hope you join us next time for another great interview. We'd also like to thank Audible Bleeding for co-hosting this episode. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Wiser Podcasts or send us an email at wiserpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com to join our email newsletter list.